listen, sci-fi fans, this is Nikola Tesla, okay? And I've been forced to do a bumper. And this is what it sounds like. You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast, all right? Whatever. You are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. And now, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows. Here are your 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 Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And this is episode 151, Miles. Mm-hmm. Can you believe it? We passed 150, had an excellent interview. We had a fantastic interview, and, and, and show 150 was a fun show. I got to give away some good stuff. Yeah, they're still sitting here. because We will send them out. Miles, there's packaging up here. Miles is going to help me package them and whip me into shape. So listeners, you'll, those of you who won will... Uh, <laughs> No. Excuse me, uh, <laughs> listeners. You'll get, you'll get to um, enjoy some good loot soon. Oh, definitely will, and uh, we will we will get out there. We mm-hmm. get out. There. What I love about episode one fifty one miles. Yes, I can say it backwards. Wait a minute. Yeah, you can. One fifty one. What do they call that? Is that called a palindrome? Is that what oh, you call it? I, I don't know the technical term. Oh, come on. You're this fountain of useless information, and I asked you something useful, and it doesn't work. But that's more educational. <laughs> yeah. Oh, useless man. information. Yeah. You, the key is useless information, right? right? We want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. We have an excellent show in store for you. We uh, have a great interview we're bringing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and whatnot and so on and everything else. We have tons of information uh, about the show that we'll share at the end of the show, but you can find out a lot more about us, how to follow us, how to join our Facebook page, how to buy our app, how to uh, do a hundred gazillion things, all at the sci-fi diner podcast.com site. So show notes will be there and everything. And I think it's about it. Let's jump into the show, Miles. Let's talk about our menu. We have a menu that uh, Miles has concocted and sir is, is ready to serve up. He is a chief chef tonight. So it's all about you, Miles. Go ahead. Okay. Well, it, we're gonna, uh, towards the end of the show, you'll hear our interview with uh, uh, Mr. Maurice Brodus and uh, Mr. Jerry Gordon, writers of the Dark Faith trilogy. So we're going to give you some, um, some good uh, sci-fi literature to talk about tonight. And our trivia... Um, well, we'll talk about that when we get there, but um, yes. I, I, I'm afraid I, I, I stumped you as far as um, winning this great picture of, uh, of Kate McGraw. We need a maniacal laugh in there. Something yeah. like that, right? That, that works. Yeah. That works? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to like look up the Wicked Witch no, no, soundtrack no. and do it. That'll, okay, got it. That would be good, too. That would be good. Okay. But in TV news, we have some very important um, – Messages from the observers, so please pay attention to that. We want you know. Right, right. Fringe is next week, right? Is that when it comes? I believe so. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So, but I just so just in time for Fringe, Mm -hmm. we're going to give you some public service announcements from from the observers, and so we 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 just ask you to take heed of those, right? Um, And um, Scott will be happy about this. So that the Shannara book series is coming to TV. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to be honest. The the two um, I've been listening to audiobooks of these guys, Shannara, Mm -hmm. and the most recent people are pronouncing it Shannara. Oh. 
So I, you know, I don't, I don't care. Right. I've always heard it pronounced Shannara, and mm-hmm. that's the way I'm sticking to it. You know. So whatever, Terry Brooks. Right. <laughs> well, how does Terry Brooks pronounce it? That's, yeah, what that's, I, that's, the, that's the question. I yes. don't know. You would think that the audiobook narrators are actually getting you know schooled by him, but mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, the Nielsen's are, are revising how they're, how they're doing ratings. We'll t- we talk about that. Finally. Oh, sorry. Well, uh, I think they're. I don't know. They're. Uh, we'll it's get thirty that. years out of date. I mean, how they right, do right. stuff. Yeah. So what, the, what, what will they do? Update it to like. Message boards? I don't know. Something right. something old school, right? But we could, we could we could only hope it it's a little more movie updated. news. So we we have a first look of uh, RoboCop in the suit. Uh, so we'll look at that. Talk about that a little bit. And this week's twist. Um, th- this happened already uh, last week, but um, Star Trek celebrated its forty sixth anniversary. And wanted to tell you about our our, our friends Chris and Charity's uh, latest podcast, Life After Trek, their interview with uh, Mike Demerit. And um, our Sci-Fi 5 at 5 will be given to us by Raul uh, Yabara. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a good one. Oh, yes. Yeah, well thought out. Anytime, anytime you get anything from Yabara, it's, it's, it's good. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, Miles, let's run into our trivia tonight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess uh, let's, uh, let, let's show how we stumped them. Well, this was the question I asked. This was this was about a few weeks ago. So, in the context of uh, of last couple episodes of Warehouse Thirteen, what does it have in common with uh, Stargate Universe? And the answer was the answer was since um, nobody was able to get it this time, um, Brian J. Smith and uh, Michael uh, Dupud. Um, so Br- Brian Smith played uh, Lieutenant Scott, and, and Mike uh, Dupud played uh, Avaro. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, it, you did have to be a Stargate Universe fan, right? And yeah, a lot of Stargate people were kind of fickle about the show. You sure. had to follow pretty closely, mm-hmm. um, and then you you do have to watch where I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did give you a hint; so you could easily looked it up. So I'm not convinced that you really want Kate Mulgrew. Yeah, so we're going to make you work. We, we still have the prize, and we're still going to give away the prize. I think we'll do this for another what month? I guess. Why don't we do it for another month and? Um, Let's if not, it's going on my wall. Or yeah. you, you can have it. We'll, 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 we'll wrestle for it. Yeah. But, but anyways, uh, what do they have to do to win Kate Mulgrew? And we're going to try and make this a little bit simpler. So you need to either write into us or leave us a voicemail telling us why you're Kate Mulgrew's biggest fan. That's right. That's mm-hmm. why. That's why you're her biggest fan. Uh, you're gonna, you can revise this and also say why you need to own this photograph, this sign print. That'll work too. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you can write in. At, and when they write in, they can send an email to the sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com. Right. Or they can call our listener line, right? right? Uh, we'd love to get a voicemail with you explaining this as well. 1-888-508-4343. And that would be awesome to hear from you. So um, listeners, tell us why, why you love Kate Mulgrew. And we should have a code word in there, right? Let's, let's call code word uh, intrepid. No, code word intrepid would work. Mm-hmm. And that way, you know, when we post this online, we don't get any Tom, Dick, and Harry just, you know, calling and not listening to the podcast. Yeah, the, the spammers are out there. Yes, although we haven't had a lot recently because we do it more intelligently. You have to yeah. these days. Um, well, let's go into our first promo tonight. Uh, our good friend, John Miro, by the way, we do have the, um, the latest Sci-Fi Rewind is recorded in the can. I have not had time to edit it together, so it should be out within a week or two. And John Miro, of course, is our featured guest. Right. He uh, he had the idea to uh, review uh, Starship Troopers. And much to our chagrin, although I'm going to be honest, after rewinding that with him, 
I have a little bit more appreciation for Starship Troopers and what it was aiming to do. Not saying I'm going to go watch it again or it's going to be making my all-time favorite right. movie, but he gave us some justification, I think, that maybe another perspective, I should say. There, Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're – the writer was – the you know, I don't know how well followed the book as far as some of the themes it was pursuing, but it definitely – there was definitely some depth in there that I, I just didn't get the first time I saw it and – yeah, there there is there is definitely a message in there. So, listeners, if you are not a Starship Trooper fan, I would seriously recommend listening to this podcast. We will spoil. We're going to spoil the movie, but we will also help you understand that there's a reason to maybe at least see it once. Right, and I mean, I, look, look, John Merrow, he, he's a writer. Um, he, he, you know, he he could take these things apart, and his his opinion is definitely worth hearing. And the best part about it, he's also Canadian. Right, right. So he and all good sci-fi comes from Canada. So, that's right. So uh, that's get, the best part. You're getting well, a very informed opinion. Yes. So we have a promo for a new book out um, called Subversion. So we're going to share this version promo from John Miro with you right now. Make sure you check out his website and you also buy this book. The U.S. government created Division Ten to track down mysterious flyers possessing technology beyond our own. Now. A corporation, Typhon System-Wide, plans to steal alien tech from the grasp of the division, and they're willing to take down a president to do it. As Typhon's plans come to a head, something escapes from a burning building in New York City. Corporate mercenaries are on the way, and so are the black helicopters of Division 10, but there's another player in this game, and far higher stakes than control of a government or technology. The Flyers are back. Subversion, a science fiction adventure novel by John Miro. Conspiracies, spies, and aliens. In enemy lines, the lines aren't as clear as you think. Buy it now on Kindle. Learn more at servingworlds.com. Well, welcome back to the show. We have we have some TV news tonight, and actually some really awesome TV news. Two pieces, especially, I'm excited about, mm-hmm. and and another piece of TV news that I'm just glad they're finally admitting it. But beyond that, let's talk about Fringe. Go ahead, Miles. So observers continue to boss us in new Fringe featurette. Uh, remember the early days of Fringe when we thought that the observers were, were curiosity, but were basically benign, or at worst, maybe interlopers for good. Ah, those halcyon days. Now we're not the only one of them was like that, and the rest, at least in the season that is to come, are not. Below, we have uh, we have the, the third of protocols that have been issued by the Fedora Ed ones. We've included the previous two for your ease of reference, and um, so listeners, uh, we have some very important messages from the observers. Yeah, so we're going to play these, and you just got to you just got to know that if you are not listening to those, prepare to be scanned. You 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 do not listen at your own peril. Yes, yes, definitely. So this is the first one here. Your loyalty is rewarded. Native Rights, Statute 16A, grants natives the freedom to travel as you please in your respective quadrants during daylight time periods. 
this does not include no-go zones or restricted checkpoint locations. If you do not have validated identification on your person, you will be subject to a scan. Curfew begins promptly at seven hours past midday. If you have not returned to your residence by this time, you are subject to a scan. Agents will determine further penalties at the scene. Heed. Obey. Serve. All right, then. Heed, obey, and serve. That's uh, rather ominous. Very much so. Mm -hmm. And that was a residency protocol. So that's what you do to actually live. Right. Go about your day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they came out with another one. This one was their travel protocol. And let's see how that one differs. See, see, see if you can observe. Use your observer skills. Okay. Vigilance is a sign of loyalty. Natives must remain in their designated living quadrants and carry validated identification at all times. Native Rights, Statute 6B, allows for short-term travel to adjacent quadrants, but this can only be achieved if the proper authorization has been issued. In those instances, your transit papers will be required at all checkpoints. Failure to provide the proper paperwork will lead to a scan and detainment at minimum. Heed. Obey. Serve. Miles, I do have to say one thing here. The mm-hmm. corridor that's behind the observer in these episodes looks like the corridor when Olivia goes to the other side and first sees Belle. The very first time that mm-hmm. we ever see Belle. Hmm. I didn't have thought of that before. Yeah, so you see this long white corridor standing behind the observer. It looks like the same thing. Whether if they're reusing a set or if that's intentional. Yeah, that'll be. We'll find out shortly. Yeah, yeah. Well, one other one. This is a cerebral scan protocol. So shared by yours truly, the observers. Your loyalty is not expected. It is required. You will comply with all native directives and regulations. While native citizens currently remain under fringe division supervision, any infractions or suspicion of infractions are subject to a full cerebral scan. If guilty, you may face a first-level wipe at the location of the infraction. Further wipes and or a full extraction will be determined at a formal inquiry. Heed. Obey. Serve. So these observers are not messing around. No, they are not. Mm-hmm. And uh, can't wait to see Fringe back, though. Oh, yeah. It's very unfortunate to be only with that 13 episodes. We know there's a finite date. But at least it gives it time to wrap up, like we always said. We're very glad there's sure. time to wrap up. So Yeah, so it'll be. I'm sure this, this will be a good season. So how well do you think uh, Olivia, Peter, and crew are going to do with these directives? I think they're going to... I bet they're just going to roll over and say, you know, for the sake of... Uh, of, of their little girl, they're just going to kind of listen. Um, some tells me that's probably not going to happen. They don't see, you know. They, sometimes they they don't always follow the rules. Um, what you think? 
I, I see them having some problems with these new... Uh, How about Broyles? Broyles is more of a rule follower, right? right? Uh, I, I think Broyles will probably capitulate some because just, 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 just for the sake of peace. He's going to play along. He's going he's gonna to wait for the right opportunity, right? That, that could be. Yeah. But you know, he's going to have to really... I mean, these guys can read minds, I think. So, I mean, uh, he's going to have to really guard his thoughts very yeah. carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Miles, for sharing that. Oh, my Let's move into some Sword of Shannara or Shannara news here, depending how, how I pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, but we got news this past week that Terry Brooks is turning the Shannara no- novels into a TV series, especially focused on the Elfstones of Shannara title. Now, the Shannara series is long and wide. There are a lot of books that go into this. And when this hit news, I was interested. A little bit surprised at first it was coming to TV. Mm-hmm. But here's what they're banking on, Miles. They're banking on the success of Game of Thrones. And they're saying, here we have another high fantasy book. Let's, let's, let's create a pilot and let's shop it around to some networks. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what's happening here. Um, and it was the uh, and so I'm I'm kind of excited about this the mm-hmm. fact that we have this series I'm a little bit worried I think initially I thought that if they do Shinar they really should do it as a movie something mm-hmm. like Lord of the Rings because it would work well mm-hmm. because it has that same feel but they're talking about you know putting it into a TV series now so, would it, would this TV series be on the 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 big cable networks or would it be you know available for you know the, the the main cable networks, I should say. Yeah, um, you know, here here's the thing. It depends what network picks this up. Mm-hmm. That's where it comes down to. Because if it is done on CW, <laughs> you're going to have something that may lack what it needs to really pull this off. If it's done in like a true cable network, like you know AMC or TNT or or. or or, you know, I, I can't see it being an HBO show. Mm-hmm. There's not enough. There's just not enough sex. There's certainly violence, right? But there's not enough sex, and there's there's no language, right? Unless they add it in, and then if they do add it, in, it kind of takes away from it. Like mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, everything's in there, right? Like what they show you is in the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have to do some restructuring of these books, which are pretty clean overall. Okay, to really make them work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but I'm excited about this, of course, and um, I'm really glad that they're finally bringing it to mm-hmm. the uh, to the small screen. I would just love to see any visualization as long as it's good. Right. And this, of course, is to say there's no guarantee it'll actually hit the screen. Right. It has to be – I mean someone has to buy it. Someone has to pick it up, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, should I talk about Nielsen ratings? Let's hear about the Nielsen ratings. All right. So Nielsen ratings, we, of course, if you listen to the Sci-Fi Diner long enough, I believe about 20 episodes ago, we were chatting about, oh, you know, how do ratings get counted? You know, mm-hmm. no one, no one, uh, you know, if I DVR something, how are those ratings counted? And Kevin Batchelder was great at explaining this. Right. But we never really heard anything from Nielsen. And we finally got some news from Nielsen ratings. Let me just share this story. This came out of um, – this is from New, this is from the Nielsen – it's just called Nielsen Ratings. It's from New York. It says the number of U.S. homes – actually, this article comes from the Huffington Post. The number of U.S. homes that doesn't – that don't get traditional television service continues to increase. But that doesn't mean they don't have TVs. 
The Nielsen Company, the Nielsen Company said that in a report issued on Tuesday that three quarters of the estimated five million homes that don't get a TV signal over the airways are through cable. Satellite or telecommunication companies have televisions anyways. Many of these homes are satisfied to use their TVs for games or get programming through DVDs or services like Netflix or Apple TV, said Donaya Turil, Senior Vice President for Client Insights at Nielsen. The company's report shows how the nature of TV service is slowly changing. Before the percentage declined about three years ago, more than 99% of TV homes received traditional TV signals. Now that's dipped to just below 96%. Also part of the decline is also economic. Service deemed expendable by people struggling to make ends meet, Nielsen said. All right, so 99 to 96%, that's not huge. Mm-hmm. That's still 3%, that, but it's not huge. I wonder if it's actually bigger than that, but I mean, I would think it is because I get it differently, but right. because of the changes, Nielsen is considering redefining what it considers television household to include people who get service through Netflix or similar services instead of traditional TV signals. Terrell said, finally, we say, um, during the first three months of 2012, the average consumer spent about 2% less time watching traditional TV than the previous year, Nielsen said. They are more than made up for that by spending more time watching material recorded on DVRs or on the Internet through TVs, computers, or mobile devices. The typical consumer spends 14 minutes a day using gaming consoles, although it's more for owners of Wii, Xbox, PlayStation 3, Nielsen said. Many of these devices also are popular sites for accessing video, Turrell said. The game devices are becoming an entertainment hub, she said. People over the age of 65 spend nearly 48 hours on average watching television each week. Holy Hannah. That's a lot of... That's a lot of television. Yeah. That's like that's like work week. I guess they figure they're retired and maybe that's all they do. It's People, kind of sad though. Over 65. Is, is that, does, does that seem like a sad statistic to you? I mean, I'm all for television and all that. Sure. But if you spend the equivalent of a work week watching TV... That's... And that's an average... I, I can't. That means there are some that are watching 60, 70 hours, and there are some who are watching maybe 20. That's That seems like a lot, an awful lot. Oh, my gosh. What state is our country in? Well. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion, but, you know, that's a lot of hours to be watching TV. Right. Um, and I'm sure that Kevin Batchelder, who watches every single new sci-fi show out there, doesn't even get close to 48 hours. He might get close to 20. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And he's pushing it. He's a full-time job. He can't do it. But he has a time machine, so he, you know, that's how he makes it he work. He does. Yeah, he does. So he, mm. maybe he does get 48 hours squeezed in there. Mm. But, you know, Nielsen said at the other end of the spectrum, teenagers are aged 12 to 17 who spend an average of 22 hours per week watching TV. That seems like an awful lot. That's a lot. But maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it is. Get this. Um, African Americans spend, on average, 210 hours per month watching TV, more than whites, nearly 153 hours. Latinos, 131, and Asians, 100. Hmm. So that's an interesting t- statistic. They don't say how they're going to account for the DVR viewing, mm-hmm. but at least during this is at least they're acknowledging it. Right. I mean, before it was the Nielsen's only judged it when the TV show was on, and if people were watching, you know, watching it at the time it was on. Yeah. What's that first step to to to, to correcting problems, admitting you have one? So they're at least admitting they have a problem here, right? That, that's so that's just, progress. Yeah, so they just so so yes, yes. Hello, my name is Nielsen, <laughs> and uh, we do not count DVR and uh, web recordings. Um, We've been doing it wrong for the last 30 right, years. Right. We're a traditional TV addict <laughs> or addict, you know, so whatever, <laughs> you know. But, well, I mean <laughs> – most of I mean most of us watch TV differently than we than we do. Well, you know, and, and I'm of course 
five years ago. I mean, I, yeah, five years ago, I watched TV totally differently than you do now. It's all iTunes or Netflix. That's all we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still have cable, uh, but a lot of it's DVR. A lot of it is um, uh, using our, our, our Roku, our streaming device, so we can yeah. you know, watch stuff either on Amazon Prime or uh, Netflix. See, what they don't break down is that I'm sure that most seniors, 65 and over, are 48 hours, that is watching live TV. Most of them, they might be DVRing, but they certainly aren't maybe Netflixing quite as much. And no. they certainly aren't. Certainly Apple TV and Roku are a bit of a stretch for them. They certainly, don't have, time, their, yeah. they certainly don't have their computers hooked up for most of them. I'm making a generalization here. I'm not saying there's none that do. But, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, this is mostly live TV. So hopefully that this will bode well for other sci-fi shows. I'm sure a lot more people are watching sci-fi that the Nielsen's count. And so, if they change how they how they they judge ratings and get a more accurate you know reading of how what people are watching, you know the shows that we we really like will you know stay on the air longer. Yeah, we know. And, and listeners, I would love your thoughts on this. So we have Nielsen seems to be taking a first step here. What does Nielsen need to do to make this right? Mm-hmm. To make our votes be counted, and especially I think genre shows which tend to have more of a um, you know, a techie, geeky following. It's these people that are using the new devices and incorporating them that want their voices to be counted. What needs to happen? What do they need to do in order to count that? Yes. Miles, let's move into some movie news. We have uh, some uh, RoboCop. Right. So we finally got a look at the new uh, RoboCop uh, costume. Um, we've, we've had a look at a handful of, of Omnicorp's uh, uh, re- we read the official synopsis. Now it's time to get a look at the cybernetic crime fighter himself. Onset picks have just revealed what uh, <coughs> excuse me, Joel Kinnaman's RoboCop reboot suit looks like, and it's definitely a departure. Kinnaman was spotted over the weekend on films Toronto set sporting what can only be as a new RoboCop, RoboCop armor, and it is uh, here. And so... Um and, it, and just make sure it thinks that there's one with the visor up option. Well, it's definitely not what Peter Weller wore, but the silver exterior with black accents at the uh, joints have been replaced by an all-black theme that looks a bit like uh, Christian Bale's bat suit. And the bulky muscle look has been replaced by something much leaner. Also, he seems to uh, have saved one hand from a robotic uh, reinvention. Unless there's some kind of massive CGI overhaul coming in post-production, that is very different RoboCop. Of course, we're, we've yet to really see this new suit in action, and this could just be part of what director uh, uh, Jose Padilla is, is delivering us. But it seems clear that there's a very different look in store this time around. So what do you think? Is the new RoboCop uh, look a refreshing minor take or, or just a remake dud? Uh, so what do you think, Miles? Um, I figured it would have to be... There's going to be some departure from what we remember. You have to, you have to update it. I think the old RoboCop uh, suit looks so cold. I mean, it's supposed to look cold, but it mm. seems so metallic and square that you almost have to streamline it just a little bit. Right, and it's so it's big and bulky. Um, there's no way he can move too fast. And I mean, it was cool looking. I mean, it was made, for the late '80s. This was this was good stuff, and and. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's no surprise that they would have to you know do some do something a little different and make it their own, which is good. Um, but it, it it does sort of look a little like maybe the Batman suit a little bit, and and I, I actually saw a picture on Facebook kind of comparing that with the Iron Man suit. 
Well, you know, it, it has that look. It has, I mean, this the way suits are going. Certainly has a little bit of the Batman look. I mean, you put a cape and ears in that sucker, and it looks Batman-ish. It does. My guess is there may be some CGI put over it, just a little bit. You would, I would think. I would think. And, well, here, here, but I don't know. And, w- w- now with the CGI, I, maybe they can make look like things are coming out of his like he, he stored his gun in his one you know in his right leg basically right uh, in, in, the, in the original movies so but now they could do a cgi make it look like he's getting his gun and right so they, they they can they could do that and maybe maybe this robot cop will will move a lot faster than the old one did yeah well you know i think it almost has to because mm-hmm. he was a pretty slow robocop and they <laughs> right uh, Exactly. I mean, um, if, if he, he couldn't catch a thief in this thing unless he shot him, I mean, <laughs> no, definitely not. So definitely maybe, not. maybe this RoboCop can can move pretty pretty fast. Yeah, but I I kind of like it. It's it, it's um, you know, it's it definitely has a more modern look to it, and uh, I'm I'm intrigued. Definitely one that I want to eventually uh, see. Mm-hmm. Maybe not maybe not in theaters, but I'd like to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we uh, thanks, Miles, for sharing that. We have no uh, audiobook re- news this week because mm-hmm. we're slacking. Not that we aren't listening to audiobooks and all that. Just, I mean, I'm listening to like the Shannara series, but it's not really a audiobook, and right. we don't have a uh, one in line. And we didn't come up with one, so maybe next time, Miles, we'll have to come up with another audiobook. Yeah, I'll have to see a, a, a new one. Either you or I are listening to. Um, yeah. But there's, there, you know, I'm, I'm still looking forward to. I'm still enjoying. We're alive. And uh, there was actually a uh, on, on Le- Leviathan had a uh, soapbox where um, Casey Willand and uh, uh, Christopher Buca were, were, were talking about their experience in, in making audiobooks. So that was a uh, interesting uh, dis- discussion. And I would, yeah, and uh, Christoph said he'd be on the show again. We just got to nail that down. Yeah, we got we, we got to talk to Christoph yeah. again. Do you want to do you want to talk to him? Sure. sure. All right. It's all right. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll have to. You know. We'll figure something. Maybe out. when 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 he's close to releasing season two. Yeah, that has to be close. I would. Yeah. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Let's move on into this week in Star Trek. All right. Well, this week in Star Trek, uh, last week it celebrated its forty sixth uh, anniversary, and uh, our friend. Uh, Chris Wood from Subspace Comms uh, just posted a little article. So 46 years ago today, Star Trek launched its five-year mission. Unfortunately, it only lasted three in its original form. But Trek, as we know it, consists of over 700 hours of television and movies. It seems that this year, Star Trek is getting more press than usual on its anniversary. Google, Oreo, and websites that world are are celebrating the launch of Trek. Some even proclaiming today as Star Trek Day. Of course, we're not complaining. Where will we be without Star Trek? I've often wondered that. But really, the world would be a much different place if, if Gene hadn't been offered a second pilot or, or Lucille Ball and Desi Lu had just passed up on the show. Could there have been a less different show that t- took its place and uh, inspired millions of people to boldly go on the human adventure? Who could say? I'm just thankful that uh, Gene got the chance to express his ideas through a medium that was available to so many viewers worldwide. On this anniversary, I'll, I'll leave you with one of my favorite v- videos uh, of Gene for us. No, no, no limits. Happy Star Trek Day. And uh, that's on Subspace Comms uh, site. Uh, there's a short video from Gene Roddenberry on there. <coughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, 46 years, people still enjoy it. Yeah, Can a, you imagine four years from now, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah, the 50 year will be a big, big, big celebration. Oh, you better believe it. Mm-hmm. Big Vegas Con. That's the one we should go for. Maybe in a few years we can hit Vegas Con. Yeah, we should. 50th year would be great to hit Vegas. Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> that's a plan. 
And, yeah. and, and next thing I have for Life After Trek, um, again, this comes from the folks at, at Subspace Communique, their podcast, Life After Trek. Uh, they're episode 20, and they interviewed uh, uh, Michael uh, Demerit. Uh, we're pleased to announce uh, episode 20 of our Life After Trek podcast featuring Michael Demerit. Many of you know Michael from his time on the full run of both uh, Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise as first, second assistant director. He also worked most recently on the hit shows like ABC Family's Make It or Break It, Showtime's Californication, NBC's Las Vegas, and many others. We met him at BioCon 2012 in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and got the chance to experience his inside Trek panels featuring many never-before-seen photos and stories. We know then there that, that he would be an excellent guest on Life After Trek. We, we ran the full gaunt of... Uh, of um, Mike's Trek experience on this episode, but also got to talk about his start in Hollywood and his early years as a DGA trainee. For those Life After Trekkers out there, love behind-the-scenes info. This is an episode you, you don't want to miss. If you'd like to learn more about Michael and his work, you can check out his official website at michaeldemerit.com and his full list of credentials on IMDb. So I've, I've heard the podcast, and again, uh, it's, it's a lot of good inside information. Sometimes people call it uh, inside baseball. But uh, this man has a wealth of stories to, to talk about uh, things on Voyager and things on um, on Enterprise, and uh, um, dispels some myths uh, that, that that may have crept up. Because he was there. I mean, this is, you know, if you want to know what was going on in Star Trek during those years, this guy knows. Right, which is awesome because you know we're always looking for some new inside scoop on Trek because you know we don't really have any new Trek right now, so mm-hmm. it kind of helps. Fill that void a little bit. I it think. does. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, I'm just I'm just glad that Chris and Charity got a chance to sit down with him. Yeah, it's a fantastic interview. I, I enjoyed it, and uh, listeners, if you're fans of Star Trek, you'll enjoy it too. Awesome. Well, thank you for bringing us this week in Trek. My pleasure as always. Well, let's move into our last promo tonight. Our last promo not tonight comes from the guys at Gatecast. Right. And uh, they're still pumping them out. What season are they in, Miles? They are in season. Um, uh, season seven right now. They're almost at the end. They just recently reviewed the episode of Heroes Part One and Two. Probably that's a great. Think people think of that as maybe one of the best Stargate episodes ever. Yeah, and uh, I, I have a hard time disagreeing with it. And I actually used some of the material in that for one of our trivia questions a while back. Yeah. I mean, I had three huge guest stars in that. Uh, um, in both those episodes. So yeah. they, they finished re- reviewing that. Uh, Mike and Alan do a fantastic job uh, of, um, they call it um, sort of a mystery science fiction theater watching, um, you know, Stargate. But they both love Stargate and uh, just uh, they just do a good job reviewing it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, here's a promo for it. If you get a chance, please check out the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeffrey R. DeRigo, author of the Union Do stories available at Escape Pod, Clone Pod, and very soon at 1-800-GO-UNION.COM. I get my Stargate fix at GateCast. Stargate commentary delivered episode by episode. Get yours at gatecast.phasecast.com or subscribe by iTunes. GateCast, the Stargate podcast for fans, by fans.
Ladies and gentlemen, we at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast delight in making you aware of uh, sci-fi treasures out there, which are either in TV, films, books, audiobooks, and any other mediums. Well, tonight we'd like to introduce you to two authors who bring faith and science fiction together to tell you some exciting stories. We have as our guests Mr. Maurice Broadus and Mr. Jerry Gordon, writers of the Dark Faith Trilogy. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us on the Sci-Fi Diner broadcast on a podcast. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Woo. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have to. We're going to have working together for a long time. <laughs> yeah, you know what each other is going to say. No, but, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, what we'll, we'll do is we'll try to introduce and say we'll try to direct the question at one person and then the other. That way we uh, don't have you talking at the same time too much. Um, okay. I think one of the things that we that we often like to start off when we're talking with people is, uh, you know, we, we work in the sci-fi fantasy, dark fantasy, uh, horror genre because of the influences of our past many times. There's something that draws us there. And we do want to talk again about your writing, but we want to learn more about both of you and your makeup. Can you tell us just a little bit uh, about your backgrounds, maybe what got you into sci-fi and ultimately writing sci-fi? But let's start Let's start with you, Jerry, and, and then we'll go to you, Maurice. Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, early on, I uh, uh, fell in love pretty quickly with Ray Bradbury. Uh, started out with Fahrenheit 451. Uh, if you, I, I, I like to mash up a lot of different genres, so I leap from things that are definitively sci-fi like that to maybe something like Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, where you're going to take kind of a horror element and then add a science fiction bend to it. Uh, but those books were really influential when I was starting out. Um, I also read uh, Stephen King's Mist uh, at the age of 13, uh, in the middle of a tropical storm trap. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think he, he put paid God for a better, uh, a better way to read that story. Right. Well, and what a perfect, perfect setting to have to, to be reading that in, as you kind of suggest. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, it was, it was, it was quite incredible. I mean, I was glued to the page with a flashlight, no electricity. It was pretty cool. Right. Right. That's, that's awesome. Uh, Maurice, how about you? Uh, what kind of got you into this genre? Um, well, let's see. It probably started when I was all of uh, in a fourth or fifth grade. Um, I was attending a very conservative fundamentalist uh, church at the time. Um, but my church was uh, my Sunday school class was filled with nothing but like pastors kids, which which meant that no one was paying attention but me. And, uh, <laughs> because they all knew everything, of course. Oh, yeah, they knew everything, <laughs> right. which meant they could just cut up and act in which was a class. Um, so my Sunday school teacher at the time, he uh, took a real, uh, real strong interest in me because, one, I was the only one paying attention, and, and two, he, just, he, he could just sense a kindred spirit in me. And so uh, one day he invites me over to his house, and, uh, and he's like, hey, I got something I want to show you, but, you, you know, we can't really talk about this, you know, too often. And, and so, like, all my little, you know, even at fifth grade, all my little radar things are being sent off. Like, uh-oh, what's this guy going to break out for me? Right. Uh, he brings out this closet full of, like, Doctor Who tapes, um, every Hammer, uh, uh, Hammer uh, film that, that they ever made. He had the hugest collection of, oh, and his uh, closet full of comic books, too. Um, so I'm just like, dude, seriously, this is what you had to show me? He's like, yeah, he's a, a, a classic horror and sci-fi guy, um, but it's just not, not something that he could talk about freely at the church. But he knew that, you know, he, he could sense within me that, you know, somewhere in there I can sense it, you know, my people. 
And so, uh, yeah, we just started this friendship based around comic books and, and horror movies and uh, uh, books and, and comic books. And we just, uh, man, yeah, he got me collecting comic books. And next thing you know, I have like tw- a 20,000 comic book collection that's oh just my for my house. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's probably what got me into it. And then uh, in school, uh, with all of that just sort of gestating under the surface, you know, uh, it wasn't too long before my teachers were just like, you know, you need to be writing in this genre. And I'm like, I don't even know what a horror genre is. They were like, let, let us introduce you to this book called Dracula. And okay. see if this w- in any way resonates with you. And then yeah, I was done after that. Okay. All right. Now, do you have a favorite uh, comic book series that you, that you follow or? Um, I, I, I'm proud to say that I've been clean for about six years now. <laughs> uh, I haven't really bought anything in, in a while. Uh, I, I will quietly say that the library has been my best friend, so it's been a bit of an enabler for me, even though I'm trying to quit entirely. <laughs> um, but uh, Brian Michael Bennis, I, I buy everything. I mean, I, I read. If my wife's listening. I read everything he does at the library. I don't actually take any money out of the family budget to do any of this. <laughs> um but yeah, Brian Michael Ben is a, is a huge uh, favorite of mine. But then uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of old school. So, you know, Neil Gaiman, Frank Miller, um, Alan Moore, crazy as he is. Uh, you know, those, those are, those are uh, some of my favorite writers. Oh, Peter David's another one. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all over the place. Very good. Now, now, Jerry, you really didn't talk too much about, you mentioned kind of the influences for sci-fi for you, but you really didn't mention how you ended up writing in the, in the genre. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for us? Sure, sure. And, and actually, uh, you know, we do some of these interviews and they're so focused on books and writing that I almost immediately kind of categorize answers in that direction. <laughs> okay. uh, but as soon as, as soon as we're, I'm like, okay, uh, favorites, right? Yeah, comic books, boom. Uh, no, actually, probably if there was a, a, a huge influence on me uh, to begin with uh, from a science fiction perspective, uh, I'm old enough to have seen Star Wars in its original theatrical run. All right. And, well, and I, to this day, can still remember what it was like walking out the door at the end of that experience. That's uh, awesome. Because I wasn't walking. I, I was about three feet above everyone else in a completely different world. <laughs> All right. Uh, and and that, uh, that, that kind of immersive thing that you can only get from fiction, whether it's, you know, whether it's written or it's, it's a movie or it's you know, TV show, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I buy into that hook, line, and sinker. So um, I actually, as far as getting started with writing, I uh, was in college, and originally I went to college to become a broadcaster, and I talked myself out of that. And after talking myself out of that, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and I went to the library, and I started looking around at a lot of books, just for some sort of direction. And I started picking up books that were uh, biographies of uh, movie directors, that were biographies of screenwriters, that were biographies of fiction writers. And immediately, uh, I, I was born in a small Midwestern area where you would never think about becoming a writer. Uh, and it almost immediately clicked, and I knew that that was the direction I wanted to go. So, as a matter of fact, one of those books was Skywalking by Dale Pollock, which is uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes uh, uh, biography of George Lucas. Okay. Yeah. Back when George Lucas was cool. 
<laughs> yeah, before it became like, let's reinvent this movie like 15 gazillion times and sell it to people. <laughs> well, right. I, I try and be polite and say these obviously aren't for me. Right, 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 right. That, that, that's a nice way of saying it. That is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, now, Jerry, um, I, I heard that um, you had a chance to be a Klingon extra in Star Trek. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I'm a Star Trek fan. Um, I, I gravitate towards Star Trek. He has to ask. I have to ask this question. Yeah. yeah uh, nice, nice job there. Uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, There was a girl that I dated uh, while I was in college. Uh, Always we comes both, back to the girl, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we were both big uh, film people, and she uh, got a job out in uh, L.A. Uh, as an editor for Paramount Pictures. And I was going out there a lot in college and, and kind of surfing couches. And, and thanks to her and a lot of people that I knew, I've got some, some family in set design and special effects. I was able to spend a lot of time on studio lot, uh, in, you know, while they were filming. And uh, uh, I came out there, I can't remember what year it was. And I, I'd been about to about star trek that the next generation was filming at the time uh they they were they hadn't ramped up yet for uh, uh deep space nine uh but i i just kind of got this last minute opportunity hey do you want to come in and we'll, we'll dress you up and kill you off in about two seconds so there, there's no speaking there's no you wouldn't you wouldn't know it was if you were looking at it, but um but yeah uh now the, the 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 funny side of that, since we're talking about it always being part of the girl, or always having to do with the girl, is that once she saw me with the bony prosthetic forehead and all that sort of thing, she just couldn't imagine me any other way, and it it just didn't work very well. <laughs> oh. Oh. And so I uh, and so and now that was for TNG then. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. TNG. Yeah. And do you, do, you, do you know what episode? I do, but I, I I have a running game with several people who've been trying to figure out which one it is. So, oh, so you can't so give I it away. Say, <laughs> I, 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 will, I will admit that it is TNG. Okay, well TNG, so a Klingon episode. There, there aren't too many. There aren't too many episodes with traditional Klingons. Okay. It sounds like you got to live an, a nerd's dream. You know, it's. <laughs> oh, I really. I had a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I I was on a lot of. Uh, movie sets uh, like The Hunt for Red October, uh, which was on a giant gimbal. Uh, it was a set the size of a house uh, for the submarines, and it would literally tilt 45 degrees in any given direction. Uh, yeah, that, it, was, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Awesome, awesome. Well, now, uh, Maurice, you mentioned that you mentioned some of the literature that got you into, and then how your how your school teachers, high school teachers, I'm assuming with Dracula, probably got you into the writing end of it. And you did mention that comic books, while you can't buy them anymore, you're still indulging in them. I guess as you uh, get to the library, do you do you consume any other? Do you consume sci-fi any other way, like television or movies? Is there something that you're enjoying right now that maybe is influencing you that or that really gets you excited? Oh, yeah, my consumption of television probably demands an intervention at this point. <laughs> oh, so another uh, one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, in a casual week, I could devour an entire run of anything. So, like, it took me about a week or two to go through, like, all of Battlestar Galactica, for example. Oh, wow. <laughs> 
So uh, yeah, I I pretty much I, I go through like I just did. I just what what have I watched lately? I did Community, and then uh, I'm going through Alphas right now. So for Alphas for like another day or so, I'm done with Alphas. Um, I'm trying to think of what uh, what really has me jazzed right now. Besides, uh, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to let the Doctor Who episodes stack up for a bit before I can uh, go through all of those. Right. So uh, yeah, pretty much you name it. Uh, I'm probably watching it. Sadly enough. No. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Very cool. Now, are you are you keeping up? Do you keep up with like the current season of Alphas? Or are you going back and watching season one of Alphas? See, I I hadn't even. Uh, I'm, I'm right now. I'm just doing TV through like Netflix. Okay. And uh, I just and I just got Hulu, so like all the stuff. I'm I'm about a season or so behind. Uh, um, so I'm just now discovering Alphas, for example. Yeah. But it also gives me a chance to uh, uh, keep track of all the reviews to see which ones are worth my time, even though it's going to absolutely. Be, you know, yeah. a week a week's commitment to just about anything. Uh, but still, I like to make sure it's worth my time before I dive in. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, we want to de- we want to delve into dark faith a little bit, but mm-hmm. I think as we talk about dark faith kind of coming to light as the anthology, tell us a little bit about what brought this anthology to light uh, what made you maybe maybe we knew, do need to go and give a little bit of a premise for the anthology and then talk about how this came about because i think that's an interesting story okay um so i don't care who wants to answer this jerry maurice you you play rock scissors paper spock okay um well i, I guess i probably ought to start because uh it all uh it all started with a convention that i throw named after myself called a uh, mocon and, um, and and the you premise of going to stop and explain that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, well, so you well, don't sound full of yourself. <laughs> well, we haven't taken that off the table as far as uh, being a part of MoCon. Right. Um, but with uh, MoCon, what, what I what I do is I invite uh, horror writers, sci-fi writers, fantasy writers uh, in, around the country and everything, and we hold basically a writers' convention at a church, and uh, and we uh, basically. During the part of the weekend, we'll, we'll try to have like three quasi-formal discussions, um, something involving uh, uh, the craft of writing, the, something involving spirituality, and then something involving uh, some social justice issues. Um, and those are the, like, we, we always try to have three big conversations, with, uh, and then, uh, and then frankly, I just keep throwing food at people until everybody goes home. So the, the convention is basically one giant room party where and it's basically what I'm trying to recreate is uh, you know the experience of going to a convention but just sticking it with room parties because I think that's where all the interesting conversations happen and so basically I'm just recreating a, a one giant room party that lasts basically the whole weekend. Oh, very cool. And so uh, with that in mind, I, we realized that after about four of these, I think it was after the fourth one. Yeah, but after yeah, I think three or four MoCons, we were just like, wow, the, the the number of writers who've been floating through here would be cool if we did an anthology based off, uh, you know, some of the people who we've had here at MoCon. And uh, so, you know, I basically get you know Jason Sizemore over at Apex Books. You know, if you get drunk enough, you know, all sorts of ideas sound great. <laughs> and so uh, uh, he he said, hey, yeah, let's go ahead and make a run of that. And then uh, and originally we were just going to call it the you know something generic like the MoCon anthology, but uh, once once word got out that this was what we were setting around uh setting about doing uh yeah then a lot of people wanted to come out to play uh I mean, the project ballooned way bigger than uh we thought it was going to be and 
and that's how it started to uh, morph into uh, dark, the dark teeth we've come to know and love. I think Jerry can probably pick it up from here for, about how he got involved in the project. Yeah, and actually, I, I didn't know Maurice had done uh, two or three of these uh, three of these conventions before I even met him. Um, I was in a I was at a conference in Ohio uh, with Gary Brombeck. Uh, he kind of asked me who I was working with in Indianapolis. I'm, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, I said I, I really hadn't met anybody that I really liked working with. He's like, well, you've got to meet Maurice. And so he kind of put us together. And uh, so I attended one of these, uh, one of these uh, MoCon conferences. And uh, 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 Maurice is, is much more forward with his religious beliefs and that sort of thing. And, I, and I'm uh, uh, a lot less so. And uh, so I thought, well, this is going to be really interesting, you know, all these writers in a church and, you know, what's this going to be like? But I, I, I just kind of went with it. And I was uh, incredibly impressed by something uh, that was going on there that really is at the core of uh, this anthology series we're doing, which is uh, Maurice had brought in people who were of diametrically opposing worldviews, um, ardent uh, religious people, uh, atheists, and every flavor that you could possibly have in between. And they were talking about religious and social and writing issues uh, in a way that they could actually have a conversation about them that was thought-provoking in all directions. You know, nobody was proselytizing. Nobody was trying to, you know, just enforce their way of thinking on people. And I, and I was really impressed by it. And uh, when, uh, when Maurice originally talked to me about the idea of, hey, maybe we could do this with a book, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in genre, and, and, and I, this would be true of me, too. When you say a word like faith, there's kind of an immediate stop. Yeah. You know, like yeah. if, if, if I'm a mystery writer, nobody's going to accuse me of murder. But if I start writing about politics and religion, all of a sudden social issues, there's an assumption that there's a hidden agenda there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the book was really created kind of with the idea of belief in mind and, and a really broad vision of that. So we're not just talking about uh, religion. We're talking about science, magic, love, all of those things that kind of propel people uh, through their lives, the, the really interesting things and the incredible moments of change in life. Uh, and, and those are in, in this book and the, the first book, uh, which was nominated for quite a few awards, uh, is really uh, taken from many, many different angles, and, and uh, if anything, that kind of uh, uh, religious angle is, is more minority. You know, we really tried to take uh, a lot of different writers and a lot of different ways of looking at things and, and put them together. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think what amazes, as you're talking, I'm thinking through just the way um, fantasy and I think horror often delves into into the mystical into the into the spiritual through the through through whether it be angelic beings or demonic beings or just um uh, even whether it be through gods just through the the fantastical elements and so faith seems to be a natural out outcropping of the genre at least in some regards but so many times like you guys said or like I think you said Jerry that there's a sense in which the moment someone mentions the word faith and in genres, like it's a stop. You know, no one wants to talk right. about faith. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge taboo. 
you know. Yeah. Well, and, and here's here's the problem. I think that's a very uh, recent occurrence that that's kind of coincided with the kind of hyper partisan, divisive political culture we have today. Oh yeah. Where everybody every goes. where everybody's trying to sell you something because if you stop and think about the the best in science fiction, whether it be in books or movies or TV shows, there's a tremendous amount of that. You know, if you think about something as simple as the original Star Trek, just putting a diverse group of people from around the world together just to make the point that it can all work out. Right. You know, um, I, I just finished an essay where I was, I, I mean, then this is more uh, fiction, but I was talking about, I was kind of talking about uh, this in terms of of uh, a real expansive view, and I mean uh, of belief. And if, if you take a book, like for example, I am Legend, since I brought it up earlier, that book collapses without the main character's obsessive belief in science. You know, if you take a book like 2001 or the movie 2001, you can't not have that enigmatic creator at the end of the story. Right. Right. You know, right. I, I think science fiction and fantasy and horror have been doing this stuff for a really long time. And I think it's just more recent that that we kind of have a pause. Like, are, are you trying to sell something? Are you trying right. to convert me? Yeah. I think it was one of the things that I found so refreshing. Did you watch the reimagined Battlestar Galactica? Oh, I, I absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, 30, 33 is one of the best hours of television <laughs> that will ever happen oh yeah well, you know and it's just they one of the refreshing things is that they they brought in faith and they brought in politics but it didn't necessarily give you the answer they just kind of said here's the issues that come up with this stuff and left it at that and it was kind of refreshing because we i know miles and i talked about this numerous times that a lot of tv shows uh nowadays just kind of stay away from that and it was kind of refreshing to <laughs> see that Rondi moore was not afraid to at least tackle it in a show so yeah yeah i i i I thought that was phenomenal, yeah. uh, that approach. And, and sometimes it worked for me incredibly well, and sometimes just okay. Yeah. But it was just so awesome that they were willing to take that leap. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Now, you know, I think, uh, Marie, you come, you come you're, an, you're an ordained minister, right? Well, ordained is a strong word. <laughs> I think someone's been, you know, tampering with my bio there. Right, right. Um, uh, I was reading your think, bio just so you know, but no. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, no, I'm not an ordained minister. And I think part of the confusion comes about because I helped plant a church and I helped run a church for several years. Okay. Uh, and I'm still very actively involved in uh, a lot of ministry work. So people just kind of assume that that's just part and parcel of, uh, of the Maurice package. But I'm not technically ordained. I, okay. I, just, I go, I do the work, and that's pretty much all I care about. Let me let's. There's so much work out here to be done. Let's just, I'm not worried about titles or anything like that. Right, right. So, right. Uh, meet people where they are and, uh, and and get about the work of, of the church and stuff. I assume I assume your background, just from the little that you said about Sunday school, that you come from a fairly traditional background. Um, or is that not true? Traditional? You mean in terms of church? Yes. Um. Yes, we will go with that. Okay, well, so I've been I've been kicked out of plenty of churches. Okay. <laughs> that's the thing. So how how hard has it been just for you to kind of take the approach? I mean, you're you're, you're kind of facilitating this thing through MoCon, right? As you call it, mm-hmm. um, this place where people from all worldviews can come and just dialogue without right. any judgment. 
it, as, was that difficult for you, or did, how, I mean, how did that grow about? Because I find that so many uh, fundamentalist Christians would have a really difficult time with that. Right, right, and that's one of the reasons why I uh, was quickly tr- uh, kicked out of the fundamentalist church. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and it helps that you're going to start something like this to be running a church at the time, so they can't really say no to whatever wacky idea you have. Right, right. So, uh, so that that was another big thing. But I mean, uh, I uh, we only had I think the first two or three MoCons at that church, and then we've uh, been at different churches since. And I've been surprised by, well, pleasantly surprised by how many churches are uh, are open to the idea of, of MoCon. But, I mean, when I set out to do it, I went in with the naive premise of, hey, you know what, as the church, we should be the first and foremost safe place to have conversations about spirituality. I mean, when, when people have spiritual questions or when people have uh, want to dialogue about issues of faith, the church should naturally be the place they should think of to come. It's not that way in reality, but that's the, that's the approach I, I took with everything, which is, hey, you know what? We want to have these conversations. Let's have them in church because that's where uh, that should be the safe place. And so what I strove to do with MoCon is create that safe environment uh, where people could come without judgment as, as they are and let's you know, have these frank discussions. And we have had over the years some very frank discussions. Uh, on a wide range of topics, and uh, we've had a variety of worldviews um, where we just, but, but when the rules is, hey, you know, in this place, we will respect each other, and in this place, we will listen to each other, and in this place, you know, we will hear each other's stories, and, and that's always been the foundation uh, of, uh, of the conversations, and if, you know, and if anyone can't handle that, well, you know, maybe this isn't a convention for you. Right, right. There's a door if you if you can't handle it. Exactly. Right, right. right. I think that's awesome because I I, I think that uh, I would certainly uh, agree that the, the church overall seems to have been doing a pretty poor job of accepting people, uh, of being a welcoming place for people to right. kind of explore and and so it's neat to see that you're at least uh, opening it for that. Well, I mean, one one of the common stories I hear, you know, just even as a horror writer, is once the church found out that this is what I like to write. You know, I was quickly shown the door at church, <laughs> and uh, and that was the story I kept hearing time after time after time. And so, uh, you know, that, that became almost like the, the the thing that united us, which is, hey, you know what? We're going to get here. We will. This is what we do. This is what we write. We're proud of what we write. This is part of who we are. So let's come together and just celebrate that. Right, right. So I guess this all leads us up to really the Dark Faith series. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about. The Dark Faith series. We talked about how kind of it grew, where it grew out of. Um, what is the Dark Faith series about? I mean, we know it's an anthology, but tell us about the stories. Um, well, really, the uh, the anthology itself um, is. You know, I said earlier that that uh, we're kind of fond of uh, mashups, stories that that go in multiple directions, and so you, you get a lot of stories that are You get some straight science fiction stories. But then you'll also get some science fiction meshed with post-apocalyptic, you know, or some science fiction with uh, dark fantasy. Uh, so as far as, uh, you know, the types of stories, you're, you're going to see all kinds of things. Uh, because really what we did was take uh, a group of accomplished writers, people like uh, Jay Lake, um, Tom really. Uh, Max Allen Collins, if uh, you remember the movie Road to Perdition, you've seen his work. Um, but we just kind of coddled together a, a group of writers and kind of let them go on their own. So 
so, uh, you know, uh, you, one, of, one of the just absolutely uh, fun ones that I would have never, never imagined to give you some idea is uh, there's a writer named Elizabeth Twist who uh, for 20 years has been a practicing Taoist uh, who was really considering, you know, what would it be like? What would the Enlightenment really be like? And she wrote a story called Kill the Buddha. Uh, that is basically a post-apocalyptic story where if enlightenment came, it would just be horrific. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a future where the last vestiges of humanity are fighting these, uh, these giant Buddhas. <laughs> you know, and when I say, you know, when I say faith, that's probably not, it. that would never occur to you to have a story like that. Right. Um, or this other one that I'm just reading a blur about the the idea that you could sublet an apartment in God's head. Yeah, Tom, Tom Piccarelli, um, <laughs> who has a lot. He, he uh, has a, a tremendous number of questions about uh, the way organized religion works, and so he wrote a story. And it's almost it, it's it, there's a reason why we put it first. It, it's absolutely amazing, uh, but it's a story. That basic, the basic premise is that this guy lives in kind of a New York City-ish environment, uh, where he has a, you know, he sublet an apartment that happens to be in God's head, and there are all these strange religious things that are constantly happening, uh, that he's trying to figure out what in the world they mean, uh, and it's it's uh, I'm. I'm trying to remember uh, some of them offhand here. You know, I, I remember that there's a book inside his closet that keeps track of every single person and everything they've done wrong. Um, one of the other levels has Eden on it. Uh, Maurice, you can help me along here. It, it, it's a very, very odd story, but it's just, it's absolutely terrific. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, in your book, can you tell us some of the experience of the characters in Dark Faith? Or, or maybe one, a couple. Like you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the story here of God, the subletting. Which, by the way, I just wanted to comment on. You know, it's not actually probably terribly far from what you could uh, maybe argue as reality. I mean, we're all, you know, God, God kind of thought us into right. existence, right? Right. So in right. a sense, what? we are all on God's head, right? <laughs> maybe um, in a way. Yeah. Just yeah. Imagine that taken to the extreme, and right. that's uh, topic really story. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there to give you a couple examples here, uh, Lavi Tithar, who is a Middle Eastern writer, uh, wrote a story called Robotnik that's uh, uh, about a robot in a future Middle East uh, that is basically a soldier that's been resuscitated from the, the prior Middle Eastern wars and regularly takes a drug that's called faith to suppress his memories. Um, that's that's a very unusual story. Uh, Doug Warwick, uh, who's a name that a lot of people haven't heard of, but you will, uh, wrote a story. He's he's a um, South Korean author who okay. wrote a story that takes place in Japan, and it's about an anime artist who, uh, as she creates works of art, they start altering the city around her. Um, and the the best way I could describe it would be uh, kind of literary Doctor Who almost. I okay. mean, you could very easily see Doctor Who in, in that, that type of environment. Um, 
Another one that comes to mind is uh, a story by R.J. Sullivan called uh, Starter Kit, which uh, I don't know if you guys ever had those uh, seahorses when you were a kid. Uh, sea monkeys. Yes, I'm sorry. Heard of them, but never had them, no. Yeah. You know, the little things you sprinkle in the tank and, you know, they, they you know, that sort of thing. Well, imagine that on, on a scale with a galaxy. Okay. With a little kid who has a tank in his room and I can set up a universe and and watch it start to grow and mature or annihilate itself. And uh, uh, there are a lot of different kind of science fiction-y ways that you can kind of approach uh, the, the, the concept of faith. Hmm. And we, we have a lot of it. And then we have some people who are just uh, uh, going at it from very different angles. There, there are several writers. Uh, Jay Lake uh, would be one of them who uh, wrote about much more personal things. He wrote a story called The Cancer Catechism. Uh, Catechism, I'm sorry. And, uh, uh, you know, it very, very aggressively kind of shows you what it's like to go through chemotherapy uh, mm. in a way that, that just kind of leaves you speechless. Mm. Yeah, that's why, you know, it's, and I'm listening to you. And talk. on that up note, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I, on I, that I happy note, laughing uh, only because I, you know, dark face. The, the dark face reading experience can be such a, in some ways, soul rending experience because a lot of the stories skew so dark and uh, make you think and make you question everything from such a fundamental level. That's like, yeah, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're they're very difficult to put together uh, the the order of the stories uh, mm-hmm. because it, it's very to uh, find a thematic way to kind of transition through such broad material. You know, because on the one hand, like I said, we've got Jay Lake talking about what it's like to have uh, severe cancer and go through chemotherapy. We also have Richard Dansky, who wrote a story about how, uh, uh, how your office vending machine actually has a deep cosmic purpose and uh, will make a big difference in, in the... Uh, the entire future of the universe. Hmm. Well, you know, in, in all the in all those stories, it sounds like what, what it is is the search for you know the definition of human experience through something greater. And even in the cancer story, there's something that has to define that as something greater. I mean, there has to be something more than just I mean the cancer and dealing with that's one aspect of it. But often that leads to uh, a search for faith. And I haven't read the stories; so I have no clue what I'm talking about. But right, right. But I mean, uh, you know, a good example would be uh, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, uh, and you can thank me Maurice too. for that because yeah. it bugged me until until I, I I just broke down and watched them all. <laughs> and uh, uh, and maybe it's because I'm a writer and a creative person, but the uh, the, the Van Gogh episode, for me, is just devastatingly beautiful. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it or not. I've watched uh, the only um, – and so which, what was the name of the episode again? Um, the episode – Or just describe it to me. That's fine. Yeah, it, it might be The Painter and the Doctor. Uh, okay. They go back to Van Gogh. Oh, yes, Gogh, yes, yes, yes. mad and painting things that no one else can see, and he can see monsters that the doctor right, has right. to vanquish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, but there's there's a uh, he he was a painter in his time that never saw notoriety that was reviled and they thought he was crazy, and he's considered one of the greatest painters of all history. Right, and just that that moment where they choose 
to take him from his time forward into our time so he can see for a moment the impact he had just blew me away. Yeah. You know, and science fiction and fantasy and horror, your genre fiction, it just has this, you were talking about it before, kind of a roundabout way, it has this ability, and Maurice has talked about this before, to give you a safer place to talk about things that you can't talk about in the real world. Right. You know, like if you think of the height of the Cold War in Star Trek and the idea of, you know, putting a Russian on the bridge along with a woman uh, who's black, having the first racial kiss, you know, all, all those sorts of things. You know, you couldn't do that with a, a contemporary television show. They still couldn't say the word pregnant on TV. But you could set it in this this, this future, and, and you were kind of free to play with it. Right, right. That's awesome. So we have uh, we have Dark Faith 1 out and Dark Faith 2 just came out. Is that correct? Yeah, Dark Faith 2 is uh, up for pre-orders, and I think the first copies are just rolling on the printer as we speak. Awesome. Uh, they'll be available in, uh, in time now. And, uh, and uh, from, from your website, I assume there's plans for a Dark Faith 3 as well. Is that correct? Oh, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but yes. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, so I know it'll depend a lot on how these sales do. Right. Right. I, I did notice at some point in the process of making this book that um, Bruce and Jason Sizemore, the publisher, stopped referring to it as uh, Dark Faith 2 and started referring to it as the Dark Faith series. Right, right. <laughs> so that that suggests a lot right there. Um, so that just subtly kind of went that direction. Right, right, right. Yes. Um, so if our listeners, we've been discussing a lot about matters of faith and giving us our listeners hints of the stories. Where can they pick up copies of the Dark Faith uh, anthologies? Uh, right now they can go to apexbookcompany.com. It's right there and available for pre-order um, here I know Maurice is going to Killer Con in Las Vegas. Really rough gig. Uh, <laughs> I know I, I know trying to get copies ready for that for him. So shortly it'll be available there and on Amazon. Yeah, very good. And yeah. that, the first one can be bought on Amazon. Is that correct? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, so. and, and all of your favorite uh, online venues it should be available to all of them. Yeah, yeah. Available for digital download also? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And um, you, you, both of you are working on other things also. Can you tell our listeners what else we can look forward to that, that you, uh, the both of you are, are putting out soon? Why don't you go ahead, Maurice, first, and then we'll hit Jerry. Okay. Well, uh, my, my publishers, uh, Angry Robot, are, are re-releasing my, uh, my uh, urban fantasy series, The Knights of Breton Court. Uh, they're re-releasing them as a as an omnibus. So you'll get all three books of a trilogy. That would be uh, King Maker, King's Justice, and King's War um, all, all together. Um, and the Knights of the Breton Court basically is the retelling of the legend of King Arthur, except it's set in inner city Indianapolis. It's told through the eyes of uh, gang members and, and drug dealers and homeless teenagers. Um, it's just a complete retelling of uh, all of the Arthur missiles through their eyes. Oh, very cool. So that's like you take like the stories of the Murta author and putting them in the modern setting. Yep, all, all of them. Uh, Tristan, um, 
mm, Tristan and Islude, all, all all of the myths. I mean, we got all. I'm trying to do, uh, trying to weave as much of all of the stories in, into the series as possible. Very cool. Now, um, do they, are they using like? Uh, is there fantasy elements as far as the swords and some of that still going on? Or? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, instead of a sword, we have a. a uh, let's see. Uh, oh, it's a, a gun. Um, the caliber, which is a, an old form of what they used to, uh, an old word that they used to d- use to uh, describe Excalibur. So, you know, put that up. And so he, there's a, a twin set of caliburns that, that are used instead of a sword. Oh, very good. Um, so it's, it's all sort of that sort of modern uh, spin on everything. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, so that's coming out. Anything else coming out for you or is that? Well, uh, that, that's the big one. I, I mean, I always have uh, short stories uh, coming out, and also all sorts of uh, anthologies. That uh, uh, I just had a story come out, Longone Cemetery Dance, and uh, um, oh, where else? I had a, a story come out in Shroud Magazine, and um, hang on, it. There were a couple other things that just came out that I really just blanked out on. But yeah, but the the not court. That's the that's the big one. That that's. Uh, if you really want a good sample of, of what I do, that that would be a great place to start. Awesome, awesome, Jerry. How about for you? Um, well, actually, I have a, a story in that same issue of Shroud because uh, Maurice and I found that there's just not enough that we can do together. Right, right. Of course not. <laughs> um, uh, but I, but I will I will say that the, his story in, in that, that book is just phenomenal. It's just absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, and, and I'm going to go ahead and give him the title, Maurice, because it's called The Cracker Trap. And it, it makes fun of a lot of horror movie conventions. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, he's just going to sit back there and giggle because he's happy. I, I, well, the premise of the story is, you know, in, in a horror movie, you know, there's always like that one black guy who finds himself trapped in a horror movie. And he's always sent down the long, dark hallway by himself. Well, the whole story is about that character. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, cool. Outside of uh, the Shroud magazine, which is, is available at Barnes & Pebbles right now, um, I've got a book uh, that will be out early next year uh, called Breaking the World. Uh, it's, uh, uh, again, I like mashups. It's, it's an apocalyptic thriller that's also alternative history, so it's a bit of a science fiction, uh, dark fantasy uh, mashup. Uh, the book uh, follows uh, three teenagers that are uh, caught in a standoff between a cult leader, uh, the FBI gone mad, and the literal uh, end of the world. Oh, very cool. So kind of a post-apocalyptic thing? Well, it, you know how many things that we see today that uh, hop forward? You know, you, you basically start with somebody waking up after the world's ended. Mm-hmm. Well, I... I think that the end of the world would be, you know, incredibly interesting. So uh, I, I wrote this book to, uh, it, it's basically going to be a post-apocalyptic series, uh, but I wanted to start with the way the world ends. Okay. So uh, the, basically it's, a, it's kind of a book for the uh, three teens that are, that are in the middle of it about, uh, you know, growing up, falling in love, and surviving the apocalypse, uh, mostly surviving the apocalypse. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who's, I don't know if you guys are Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans. 
I, you know, I watched the, uh, it's, uh, much to my chagrin, I made it through the first seven episodes and got sidetracked by something else. My goal someday is to watch the entire Buffy series. It, it gets much better. Uh, but, uh, this, 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 this friend who's a big fan of this series was asking me about it. And I said, well, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, everybody kind of had their little special power to get into the whole thing. And at the end of every season, they stop the end of the world from happening. And, uh, I just said, well, imagine that they don't have any powers and they can't stop the end and they're just trying to survive. Oh, very cool. And, uh, and so this is kind of the premise then for it. As far as yeah. Now, I, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm just looking at the little right. This is Breaking the World, right, we're talking about. Yeah you, yeah. you you have the cult leader, David Koresh, in there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if, um, you know, it's in, I, I tried to write the book as, as we, we would call it in the industry a crossover book. Uh, so if, if if you were a young adult reader, you could read it, and it would be one type of book. Uh, but you could read it as an adult and get something very different out of it. Right. Um, I, I wrote a short story a couple of years ago uh, that I, I just needed somebody who had absolutely no faith at all, and I needed some shorthand way to do it quickly because there was a lot of other baggage for the story. And so what I did was I thought, well, you know, what kind of traumatic event would bring any possible religious feeling you would have out of you. And I thought about uh, the, uh, uh, the Branch Davidian handoff with the oh, yeah. uh, FBI, which ended in the, you know, the, the death of all but seven of them. Right. right. Uh, and I, I just a throwaway line in a story and people kept asking about it. And uh, I had a, a hole in my schedule and I pitched the idea. And uh, uh, this actually is uh, a book that will come out through Apex Publications as well. And Jason Sizemore really liked it, and all of a sudden, I was on the hook to actually write it. <laughs> and uh, that meant, you know, it, it's really easy to, to have a throwaway line in a story where you do something like that. But if you're going to write a whole um, segment of a book that's going to take place, uh, a, a large portion of the, the first book takes place in that 51-day standoff between the government and the Branch Davidian Church, I actually had to get to know these people. Uh, Luckily for me, there's about 20 years of congressional testimony and uh, research and, and first-hand accounts. Uh, and the, the more I read, the more interesting it got. Uh, it was much different than I imagined. And so, so I, I kind of channeled that into the story. And the story uh, really begins with the, uh, the government raid on the church. And, and uh, about half of the book... Uh, is fairly close to historical events. And uh, early on, a thread in the book grows and grows until about midway through the book, it really departs into uh, an alternative history. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is that most of my students, if it was young adult, most of my students would have no idea who David Koresh is. Exactly. Right. And, and so. they're going to read it for one time. The, the funny thing is, is that when I, when I talk to adults about the book, I often bring up Koresh in the standoff, and they're like, ooh, that's interesting. Right. And when I, when I talk to younger people about it, I, I don't even try. They have right. no conception of it. Right. It'll just be another character in this, uh, in this wacky story. So. Yeah. The, the story basically follows three teenagers who they're there at the church because their parents are believers. Uh, they don't really buy into it, and so they're kind of outcasts. Uh, but they're basically there the way you would be as a teen. Well, my parents are here. 
and they're trying to navigate this standoff and apocalypse, which is actually going to happen. Hmm. Well, very cool. Well, so uh, we before we go, we got <laughs> we're going long here, but that's fine. We got to find out where our listeners can get a hold of everything we've talked about tonight, and maybe. Uh, Maybe we can, you know, find out what sites you have and maybe talk a little bit about the Apex site and where they can find that information. Uh, Maurice, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, about where people can find out information about you, where they can buy your books, where they can find out, maybe get samples of the books and so on. Okay. Um, well, you should be able to go uh, – the book comes out in uh, – the Omnibus is released in about uh, end of September, beginning of October. And you should be – that should be available in uh, any bookstore. Um, but if not, you can always go to the uh, Angry Robot book, uh, bookstore or uh, any, actually any online venue should have uh, all, all of my stuff. So um, Amazon, whoever your favorite venue is, you know, you should be able to get that or any of the Dark Fate series. Oh, very good. And, and do you have a website too? Oh, yeah, I do. I have a website, it's uh and the same with my Twitter. I like to keep things pretty simple, so you want to find me on Twitter. I'm just Maurice Broadus, and same with Facebook. So anywhere you go, you know, just look my name up. Very good. And Jerry, how about you? Uh, well, uh, first of all, for either Dark Faith or the new book, Dark Faith Invitations, uh, you, you can, like I said, I, I think for this week at least, it'll still be on pre-order. Uh, and it sounded interesting at all to you. There's a combo deal if you want them both that is, is terrific that Apex is doing right now. Uh, but you can go to uh, Apex bookcompany.com uh, for that. Uh, the original book, uh, Dark Faith, is available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest uh, way for your listeners to grab it. And shortly, uh, the, the new book will be available on Amazon as well. And both will be available in print and in electronic form. So uh, as for uh, Breaking the World, uh, that's, that's not slated until 2013. Uh, but if you're interested at all in that, you could always go to my website for updates. It's uh, jerrygordon.net. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash jerrygordon. And uh, Twitter I am on, but unfortunately some really annoying person snagged my name first. So it's Jerry L. Gordon okay. uh, on Twitter. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, we just want to thank you guys for kind of hanging out with us and uh, just discussing matters of faith. Right, Miles? Right. Yeah. And as we uh, as we chatted about that and about the books, and uh, it was great chatting with you guys. It was great chatting with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us. Well, we hope you enjoyed our interview tonight. Before we go, before we go, mm-hmm. we have a awesome Sci-Fi 5 in 5. Right. I failed to mention, I wanted to mention this earlier, Miles, that if any folks out there are listening want to share with us a promo for their show, their sci-fi, fantasy, horror-related show or something genre-related, mm-hmm. just uh, send us a 30-second um, to a minute uh 
promo for it and we'll play it on the show. Absolutely. You know, we're just pulling from people that we know and people that we connect with. Mm-hmm. We love connecting with new people. Yeah, if there's some new podcasters out there, uh, we would love to uh plug your podcast for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We're always about sharing the love. The other thing that we like to do is if we have this thing called the Sci-Fi 5 and 5, which Raul actually call, uh, didn't call in. He wrote in this awesome email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to read this in just a little bit here. But if you want to share your top Sci-Fi anything, five things, five lines, five people, five villains, whatever you want, soundtracks, you name it, we will play it. You can call in at one eight 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 five zero eight four three four three or email it to us, like Raúl did at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail dot com. Well, let's go ahead and I'll, let me introduce this. And why don't we do every other one? Okay. Yep. Uh, do you want to start at five? Sure. I'll, I'll introduce it. You start at five, and then I'll do four, and so on. So this is a little bit longer. Hopefully, it's within five minutes. But if not, hey, don't hold us to it. It's our <laughs> show, right? That's right. Uh, that's right. Just wait, dang, burn it. All right. So he's writing in. He's saying these are the five most important TV shows in science fiction. The most important. Hmm. So maybe not top, but the most important. The ones that have had the most defining impact. Okay. All right. So a few weeks ago, I had made some tweets regarding the most important TV shows. Actually, that's what we were going to do. Raul, just a little side note here. We were actually going to read those tweets as part of the top five things, and then you sent this awesome one in. So I got rid of them and just replaced them with this. So this is much better. This generated a variety of responses that nudged me into writing a bit more reason behind my selections. Going into this, it's important to note my criteria here is most important rather than best. I'm also not including non-sci-fi shows, though they often get lumped together. Thus, you won't see any fantasy, horror, or superhero shows in the list. Likewise, you will not see shows like Night Gallery, even though they did at times dip into science fiction. So he's going strictly science fiction, Miles. Right. So here's a list from the least to the most important. Mm -hmm. And so number five, Miles... Number five is Firefly. Yes, Firefly was great science fiction. It only lasted 13 episodes, so why is it so important? As I said, good does not necessarily equate to importance, uh, though this show is both. It's it's the nature of what happened to the show that makes it so important. It's pretty universal that few shows had as raw as a deal as Firefly. The shows of this serial were aired out of order. The suits interfered in the production. It was summarily canceled without really being given a chance. However... It was a critical reminder for both fans and network of the power of the fans' voices. While not enough to save this show, the outcry certainly rattled Fox. Fortunately, Fox seemed to learn its lesson. I believe it's thanks to Firefly that shows like Dollhouse got a second chance in spite of the terrible ratings, or we are getting a fifth season to, f- to finish the story of Fringe. Fox, as well as other networks, pay a lot more attention to the fans as a result of Firefly. I, I, I can agree with that. Right. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a good observation. Uh, yeah, you know what? And here's the thing. They may not be quite as quick to cancel shows because of the whole Firefly debacle. They're willing to kind of, well, let's invest a little bit more money into it. Let's see what happens the second season or let's allow it to finish out. Mm-hmm. You know. So, they just don't want the hate mail from fans, I think. They're probably tired of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Number four was Battlestar Galactica. I'm talking about the original classic show rather than the 2000s reboot. People today may not be aware of it, but introducing phrases like frack or having the main character Cassiopeia as a solicitator, i.e. a prostitute, were a huge step in primetime programming that caused considerable discussion. Equally groundbreaking was the use of cinema-caliber special effects. Largely because of this, the show was also the first to show to break a $100 million per episode barrier, an enormous sum in 1978. 
The bridge was set as one of the largest regular sets ever for a show. It was functional with working electronics, communications, and computer displays. It was primarily a very high cost of the show that led to its cancellation after the first season. Unfortunately, BSG is important in one negative area. This, this is the show more important than ever, that more important than even Lost in Space for the cute kid problem. After BSG, every serious sci-fi show until Babylon 5 was crippled by having a cute kid for youngsters. I believe that my heart of hearts, if we didn't have Boxy here, we would have never been inflicted with the Wesley Crusher a decade later. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I expected when he said Battlestar Galactica, he was going to talk about the Reimagined series. But mm-hmm. he's talking about the impact of this. And he knows much more about this than I did because I never watched the original series. Yeah. Uh, I, I- the only thing I, Raleigh, I might take exception to is I, I still think TNG would have had Wesley Crusher only because Gene Roddenberry. Roddenberry wanted to have a Wiz kid and kind of have somebody who represented himself, at least according to Gene Roddenberry. So according to Gene Roddenberry, it wasn't just because every other TV show was doing it. I don't think so. I think or maybe he wouldn't come out and say it. It's that's a hard thing to say. I just I, I just know how Gene Roddenberry felt about the Wesley Crusher character, and I know that he you know he really liked the character, and it was like I said, it, it sort of represented what he thought of maybe as 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 himself, and so. Um, but it's it you know, but he could be right. I mean, it, the the cute kid formula it was was endemic to yeah. There's no TV there's shows. no doubt that was out that was out there. It's just a TNG thing that you had an issue with. Yeah, I think TNG probably still would have had Wesley Crusher. The, the problem the problem is there's no doubt that he was a cute kid problem for the show. Sure. Whether or not whether or not Roddenberry intended it or was bu- buying into everything else in Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. He was on there, and people had a love-hate relationship with Crusher. He—he's he, definitely the cute kid thing. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well next on the list is uh, Doctor Who, and you cannot have a list of important sci-fi shows without including the longest-running science fiction series of all time. Doctor Who will be celebrating its 50th year birthday in 2013, having gone on the air in 1963. Its initial run was for 26 continuous seasons, including in, in 86. It wasn't canceled, but put on hiatus with a TV movie in the 90s and resuming regular airings in, in 2005. Aside from the runtime proving that staying power of science fiction shows, the Doctor brought us such iconic items as sonic screwdrivers, canine, and TARDIS. Dimensional transcendence, it's bigger on the inside than out, time travel, parallel universe, racism, women's rights, cyborgs, paradox, nuclear war, ethics. I've commented many times that there was a few science fiction themes that Doctor Who hadn't done before first. The show was always serial rather than episodic, sometimes being four to six episodes, sometimes being whole seasons. With such a low budget for effects, the subject of many jokes, the show had to focus on being, being story and character driven. Doctor Who also gave us some of the great villains and enemies in sci-fi. Uh, the Cybermen, the Sontarans, the Master, and of course the Daleks. The uh, resumed series have also added probably the, the scariest monster of all time, the Weeping Angels. Science fiction television owes a huge debt to this long-running and innovative show. I would agree with this. Mm. Would. By the way, it's Daleks. Daleks. Yeah, that's My right. bad. No, that's all right. <laughs> but no, I would certainly... There's no doubt that there's some campiness to this show. Like mm-hmm. When you go back into the old Doctor Who, very campy, and even some of the new episodes are. But certainly there's a huge debt to sci-fi that the sci-fi owes Doctor Who, I would mm-hmm. think. I mean, longest-running TV show? That's, that, that's hard to beat. 
that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's going on strong. Yeah, it's going on strong. I just watched the last episode, latest episode today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Babylon Five came in at number two. I'm actually surprised this wasn't Raul's number one because he's such a huge fan of Babylon Five. Mm-hmm. And but it was a close call. And he says this: it was a close call between Babylon Five and the number one choice. Star Trek won only because without Trek, we would have never gotten Babylon 5. At some point, I will probably write a full blog article on Babylon 5 just to cover all the first. It represents not only sci-fi TV, but TV in general. Just to cover a few of these, it was the first successful serial sci-fi series. First fully scored for each episode. First high-def show. First all CGI effects. First to prove you don't have to follow Star Trek model for success. In season two, the... The beat Star Trek, it beat Star Trek for the Hugo, and the next year it did it again to prove it wasn't an accident. Characters were only used when needed and even killed when it served the story. The series began intended as a five-season serial with all five seasons mapped out in advance, although with enough room to allow the story to live. The story was cohesive and well-written, and the characters were compelling. The show proved that it takes both story and characters to achieve true greatness. I'm rewatching with my son, and the story is as relevant today as it was 20 years ago. The alien cultures were very well developed, and the makeup amazing. Not just different nose bridge or ear caps. Space flight was based on the Newtonian physics, and the resulting battles were dizzying, with ships flying all directions in every orientation, sideways, backwards, and upside down. Bottom line, every sci-fi show since 1993, including the Star Trek franchise, was a huge debt to Babylon 5. Right, and... Um, and Raul, I do want to see it. I do. Yeah, I might have to give that a, a, a watch. Um, Raul, you might be interested. We had a chance to interview um, uh, one of the actresses from that show. Yeah, Mara Furlong. Mara Furlong, you know. Do you know? Do you know what? Do you know the way that we can get ourselves to watch it is we need to say, okay, we're going to do a season season one rewind of it. Like we'll have to watch, and maybe instead of taking it episodic, but take mm-hmm. like by seasons. Okay, and maybe say, okay, well, by January we're going to watch season one. Mm-hmm. By March we'll watch season two. It'll give us time. Sure. To do it, yeah, I could be open to that. Well, we'll have to talk off off the air a little bit. Okay. <laughs> well, number one, it's appropriate you're reading this. Uh, Star Trek, of course. Uh, First, uh, note well that I am referring to the original series only. None of the other Trek series makes this list, and that includes Next Gen. More than any other show, Star Trek made televised sci-fi serious. The show was initially rejected by CBS as too cerebral. Star Trek made a conscious effort to put the science into fiction, though some purists such as Arthur C. Clarke disparagingly wrote it off as uh, fantasy. Though in Adventures... Adventurous wagon trains and stars, Star Trek will hit hard on the serious social issues humanity did and what still faces. Racism, war, equal rights, medical ethics, religion, and on. It did honestly and without fear of stepping on toes. The bridge crew included a Russian, the ultimate, and aliens, and, and Spock, and women. Even more groundbreaking was the senior command officer was a black woman. Except for Doctor Who, without Star Trek, none of these other shows would have uh, been. Yeah. So high props to Star Trek there. Yeah. Yeah. So in summary, he says there could be a lot of honorable, honorable mentions, the BSG reboot, Fringe, Stargate, Farscape, just to name a few. These and others are all good and sometimes great shows. 
However important, I think it's these five shows that set the precedence upon which the others depend. These five shows set standards for stories, characters, and effects that all the others have had to live up to. They have proven themselves to be timeless and that they still hold their popularity today. I would love to hear your comments. So you, mm-hmm. you, heard, him, you heard him. He would love to hear your comments. And um, you can comment by, I guess, emailing us. And we'll, get him to, we'll get him to Raul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, what list. do you think about this list, Miles? Um, I think he had a lot of good observations as far as where, where, where these sci-fi shows, uh, their, their place in, 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 in history as far as um, what they contributed to. And, uh, um, and the key word is here, these are important. They talked about these being important shows, not best shows. Right. So you might have some favorites that also fit in here, but I'm going to be hard-pressed to disagree with this list. Yeah, me too. I mean, I never really got into Babylon Five when it was no, first and on. That, and again, that's for me. That's an era thing. I didn't grow. I didn't. Mm-hmm. There was no TV in that era that I was watching. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was big on Star Trek at the time, and just you know that that's what I was watching. But however, at the same time, I, I can definitely agree. Babylon Five broke a lot of molds that uh, need to be broken for for mm-hmm. sci-fi shows to get better. What would be interesting is to hear, and this is maybe I don't want to put more on you, Raul, but it'd be interesting to hear his take on his the five most important movies of oh, all time. Yeah. You know, so take it out of the small screen and the larger screen. Yeah, Raul, well, so what, what in your opinion is, is, the, is the five most important sci-fi movies? This is a phenomenal list. And, so, uh, yeah, you definitely want to, you put a lot of thought into this. this yeah, absolutely. So um, he, he's just raised the bar here. Yes. Yeah, and not that you have to give any that, that big of a detailed list if you're going to want, if you want to be on the sci-fi five and five. So. Yeah, the sci-fi five and five the, the, those lists could be anything. I yeah. mean, they could be the best of, worst of. Yeah, um, yeah we, we, we've done we, – we run the gamut on what we have as our sci-fi five and five. Thank you, Raul, for sending that in, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you, folks, for listening to our show. If you want to comment on anything that we talked about tonight, call us at one 508 and we'll be happy to air it on a listener feedback show. Um, you can also uh, email us at sci-fi-diner podcast at gmail.com. Miles, where else can they find us? Uh, please join us on our Facebook uh, page. We have some great, great conversations about what we're watching. Yes, yeah, backslash, uh, it was facebook.com backslash sci-fi diner mm-hmm. podcast. So, uh, some good conversations there. Miles is, you know, picture happy. Yeah, I find these good pictures uh, or funny pictures, and uh, I got to share them with everybody. Yep, absolutely. And people love them. Oh, uh, yeah. You get a lot of, a lot of feedback from mm-hmm. them. So. Um, and uh, I think that about it. All the other information you find out about us, you can do so by visiting the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast dot com website, and uh, you can hear, you can get show notes. I'll talk a little bit more in detail what we shared tonight, and I believe that is about it. All right. Well, till next time. Good night and good luck. All right. We will see ya.
It's research. They call it research. Yeah, right. <laughs> nice. uh, all right. Well, um, we have we have some questions lined up for you guys just to chat about what's going on in your world, in your writing world. Is there anything in particular that you would like us to make sure we hit other than obviously you have the Dark Faith Anthology that just came out last month? Um, let's see. Dark Faith and then uh, my omnibus of my uh, trilogy is due out uh, any week now. So uh, that's the, the Night of Breach Court omnibus. Okay. Those. But that's it for me on my end. Okay. And anything for you, Maurice? Oh, no. Uh, this is Jerry. Oh. Yeah, that was Maurice. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, it's all right. okay. Why don't you automatically know what we sound like? I know, I know. What's with that? <laughs> I could have gone back and listened to some of the interviews you did, like on the Sci Fi Signal and stuff, but. There you go. There you go. Um, I have. Uh, uh, a story out with a, a Shroud magazine right now that I can talk about. I also have a uh, uh, an apocalyptic thriller uh, called Breaking the World that's coming out next year uh, through Apex. So I can I can talk about that as well. All right. Well, we'll what we'll do is we'll kind of we'll start um, just finding out a little bit about you guys. Um, you know your makeup and who you are, and then get into some of your writing and uh, and I was talking about dark faith, and then we can kind of let you guys pimp uh, the uh, stuff that you that you have out that you 've coming out, and we obviously want to draw attention to that and you know find out a little bit more about who you guys are so okay sounds good Got the plan all right um, and uh, we can pray that the Skype gods will be good to us tonight. Mm. So. <laughs> the the hailstorm has passed our area. Oh, well, then you're good. Uh, we, we have clear skies yet. It's supposed to rain, but who knows? But we'll see what happens. So Miles will give you a little bit of an introduction, and we'll just kind of uh, – we kind of allow it to be a little bit organic, so we'll take it as it goes. If we get on a tangent, we can certainly do that. So. Okay. All right, Miles, you ready to rock and roll here? I'm recording. Sure. So go ahead. 